This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 15, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. We will be closing out the first half of Uthman's Caliphate. As uh, you will learn, if we haven't mentioned it already, Uthman ruled for about 12 years, and we are now closing in on the final events of the first six years of that caliphate, of the caliphate, the fate of the caliphate. Anyway, we will discuss uh, several events that took place during this time and hopefully begin to help you understand why there was such growing dislike and discontent towards Uthman against from among a small portion of the Muslim world. It by, by no means was the majority. We will also discuss Uthman's um, major accomplishment, the most important thing he did during his caliphate, which was the standardization of the Quran, the compilation and standardization of the Quran, which preserved the message of the Quran for all eternity. So, inshallah, we will discuss all of that. This week's favorite nasheed is a song called Jannah by the uh, rap duo, the Islamic Muslim rap duo called Dean Squad. You can listen to it after the show. I highly encourage you to, encourage you to do so. And the show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman3. Uthman is U-T-H-M-A-N. And without further delay, let's go ahead and get into the show. Here we go with episode two, no, no, season two, episode 15 of the Islamic History Podcast. In the last two episodes, we looked at certain events that had negative impacts on Uthman's reputation. We can say that Uthman used questionable judgment when he removed Amr ibn al-As as governor of Egypt in favor of his cousin, Ibn Abi Sahr. In other events, such as the so-called exile of Abu Dhar, Uthman did not deserve the criticism that he received. Nonetheless, these events and many others would be used as political fodder by Uthman's opponents. There were other events that took place in the first six years of Uthman's caliphate that reflected badly on his leadership. An example of this was the city of Kufa in modern-day Iraq. Like Fustat in Egypt, Kufa was originally founded as a military garrison during Omar's caliphate. It was meant to guard against the Persians attempting to recapture territory lost to the Muslims in southern Iraq. But over the years, that small military encampment had grown into a bustling city. The first governor of Kufa was the noble companion Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. He succeeded Khalid ibn Walid as the general of the Muslim armies in Persia and was responsible for much of its conquest. He is most noted for winning the hard-fought Battle of Qadisiyah. This victory by the Muslims all but ensured the downfall of the Sassanid dynasty, the ruling family of the Persian Empire. After resigning from the military, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was appointed by Caliph Umar as governor of Kufa. 
Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was a very strict, rigid, and disciplined man. On the one hand, he was one of the highest-ranking companions, having accepted Islam in the very early days of Prophet Muhammad's mission. He was certainly among the first ten Muslims in Mecca. On the other hand, he was also a lifelong soldier, having fought in small battles alongside Prophet Muhammad and major campaigns during Omar's caliphate. This combination of religious and military discipline made Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas a stern leader who tolerated no foolishness from his subjects. Eventually, the people of Kufa, who were notoriously difficult to govern, complained to Caliph Omar about Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. Having no true complaints about his character or his ability to lead, they had to make things up about him. One man even went so far as to accuse Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas of praying incorrectly. This was a strange declaration considering Sa'ad was taught to pray by the Prophet himself. When Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas heard of this accusation, he reportedly said the following, O Allah, if this slave of yours is lying, then take away his eyesight, give him a long life, and put him through difficulties. Many years later, Long after Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas had died, eyewitnesses saw an old man wandering the streets of Kufa. His eyebrows had grown so long they hung over his unseeing eyes. He was poor, blind, and known to grope young girls. If anyone were to ask him how he was doing, he would let out a long, sad sigh and reply, I'm an old man in difficulties. The curse of Sa'ad has caught up with me. Even though Omar ibn al-Khattab knew these accusations were false, to avoid further unrest, he decided to depose Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and recall him to Medina. However, when Uthman became caliph, he reversed Omar's decision and reinstated Sa'ad as governor of Kufa. But once again, Kufa would live up to its reputation as being nearly impossible to govern. It wasn't long before a dispute arose between Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and Kufa's treasurer, Ibn Mas'ud. Ibn Mas'ud was the companion who performed the burial for Abu Dhar al-Ghifari. Once again, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas found himself replaced as governor. This time, he was replaced by another of Uthman's cousins, Walid ibn Uqba. Walid ibn Uqba was also a companion, though not as prominent as Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, ibn Mas'ud, or even Abu Dhar. Nonetheless, it wasn't long before Walid ibn Uqba also ran afoul of the people of Kufa. They accused him of drinking wine with a former Christian poet who had recently converted to Islam. Such accusations were taken seriously and had severe repercussions. After all, this was a clear violation of one of Allah's commandments recorded directly in the Qur'an. Uthman responded by recalling Walid ibn Uqba to Medina and putting him on trial. Even though the primary evidence was only eyewitness accounts from the people of Kufa, it was enough to convict him. Walid ibn Uqba was immediately removed from his position and punished with 40 lashes. 
and the city of Kufa had its fourth governor in less than ten years. But these changes in government did little to satisfy the residents of Kufa. They remained a restless and uneasy lot and blamed Uthman for their unhappiness. While Kufa was the most difficult city to govern, it most certainly was not the only difficult city to govern. Basra is another city in Iraq that began as a military outpost. Another high-ranking companion named Abu Musa al-Ashari was chosen by Caliph Umar as its first governor. Abu Musa remained governor until two years into Uthman's caliphate. By then, the people of Basra began to complain that he was showing favoritism to the Quraysh. Upon hearing this, Uthman removed Abu Musa as governor and replaced him with yet another of his cousins, Abdullah ibn Amir. By all accounts, Abdullah ibn Amir was a successful governor and leader. However, his appointment fed the idea that Uthman showed favoritism to his family members. There were two other incidents that contributed to the growing displeasure for Uthman. Both took place during the Hajj season of 649. Nowadays, when you make Hajj, the group you are traveling with will choose the emir or leader to guide you through the pilgrimage rites. But back then, there was only one emir, and that was the caliph, or someone appointed by the caliph. In 649, Uthman chose to make Hajj and lead the people through the various pilgrimage rites. To understand what happened next, we have to go back to the days of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Prophet Muhammad only made Hajj once in his life, and that was less than a year before he died. As it came so close to the end of his life, it is known as the Farewell Hajj in Islamic literature. Our current understanding of the rules and rites of Hajj all come from this one event. It is reported that over 200,000 Muslims participated in the Farewell Hajj. Hence, there were many eyewitnesses to the Prophet's actions. One of the rites of Hajj includes spending several days in the tent city of Mina, just outside the religious sanctuary. It is known that the Prophet shortened his prayers while in Mina during the farewell Hajj. Non-Muslims may not understand the concept of shortening the prayers. Muslims are encouraged to make an abbreviated version of their prayers when they're traveling. This is considered a convenience and a blessing for Muslims, allowing them to maintain their religious duties while in uncertain conditions. When Uthman led the Hajj in the year 649, he did not follow this convention. Since he owned a house in Mecca, he did not consider himself to be a traveler. When the Prophet had made the farewell Hajj many years earlier, his official residence was in Medina, over 100 miles away. Many people took exception to Uthman's decision. 
they were shocked that a close companion of the prophet would violate one of his religious traditions, especially considering the two previous caliphs, Abu Bakr and Omar, had never done such a thing. The whispers began to spread, and one more item was added to the list of grievances against Uthman. Another event that happened during the Hajj of 649 was the case of a woman who was accused of adultery. She was a widow who had recently remarried. Within six months of her second marriage, she gave birth to a baby boy. During the Hajj, the woman was brought before Uthman for trial. Since a normal pregnancy lasts nine months, Uthman determined she had committed adultery while married to her second husband. He then sentenced her to death by stoning. When the news of her sentencing reached Ali ibn Abi Talib, he rushed to meet Uthman. Though not one of Uthman's official advisors, Ali had served in the courts of both Abu Bakr and Omar. Furthermore, no one understood the Sharia better than Ali. Ali informed Uthman of two verses in the Qur'an which would exonerate the woman. Chapter 46, verse 15 says, And we have enjoined upon man to his parents good treatment. His mother carried him with hardship and gave birth to him with hardship, and his gestation and weaning period is thirty months. And chapter 2, verse 233 says, Mothers may breastfeed their children two complete years for whoever wishes to complete the nursing period. The first verse shows that the pregnancy and nursing period of a child can be at least 30 months. The second verse shows that mothers may nurse their children for up to two years, that is, 24 months. The difference between 30 and 24 is, of course, 6. Using this logic, Ali argued that the minimum time frame for a viable pregnancy, according to the Qur'an, is 6 months. Therefore, it is possible the woman was impregnated by her second husband. Uthman immediately rushed a stay of execution, but it was too late. The woman had already been killed. Uthman was deeply saddened by this and paid financial restitution to the woman's family. There is no indication that this unjust execution damaged Uthman's character or reputation. However, it is possible it may have made his detractors view Ali as a superior replacement. It is without question that Uthman's greatest accomplishment was the compilation of the Qur'an. It is also a great irony that this was one of the biggest complaints against him. In the year 651, about halfway through Uthman's 12-year caliphate, one of the Prophet's companions named Hudayfa was traveling through Iraq. While in Iraq, he was shocked to hear people boasting about their Qur'an recitation. 
he was even more shocked by the different styles of recitation floating around the province. The Qur'an had originally been revealed in the dialect of the Quraysh, a single tribe in Mecca on the western coast of the Arabian Peninsula. As Islam spread beyond the peninsula into North Africa and Central Asia, the message of the Qur'an went with it. However, there was no printing press nor any standard version of the Qur'an. Therefore, it passed by word of mouth from one person to another. The Muslim community now not only consisted of hundreds of Arab tribes and their various dialects, but also Persians, Greeks, Turks, Kurds, Africans, Berbers, and many others for whom Arabic was not their first language. And without a standardized Qur'an to unify this diverse group, there were now various dialects and methods of recitation. Hudayfa recognized the potential consequences. Not only did the Qur'an run the risk of being watered down and losing its original message, these multiple methods of recitation could lead to multiple texts and eventually multiple Qur'ans. Hudayfa rushed to Medina and informed Uthman of what he saw and what he feared. Uthman agreed and began putting together a plan to curtail the fracturing of the Qur'an. Many years earlier, Abu Bakr, the Prophet's successor and first caliph of the Muslim world, faced a similar threat. It was barely a year after the Prophet's death and he was dealing with a massive rebellion. During this rebellion, dozens of Hufad, or memorizers of Qur'an, lost their lives fighting against the rebellion. Omar ibn al-Khattab, Abu Bakr's primary advisor at the time, feared the Qur'an would be lost if too many Hufad were killed. Omar convinced Abu Bakr to create a standard version of the Qur'an. Abu Bakr then commissioned the companion Zayd ibn Thabit to compile the various texts of the Qur'an into one collection. When Zayd had completed his work, he submitted it to Abu Bakr. Upon his death, Abu Bakr passed the book on to his successor, Omar ibn al-Khattab. When Omar died, his daughter Hafsa, who was one of the Prophet's widows, took possession of it. This book would be the standard upon which Uthman would base his compilation. And like Abu Bakr before him, he commissioned Zayd ibn Thabit for the job. Zayd put together a group of trusted scribes, retrieved the original book from Hafsa, and began making several copies. Some reports state the group made five copies, others say six. Once completed, these copies were taken to the six major regions of the Islamic Empire. An order was given that all other versions of the Qur'an were to be burned. It is here that we must make a clarification for our Western listeners. In the West, burning books is considered the highest form of ignorance and disregard for knowledge and enlightenment. But, 
In Islam, the only way to properly dispose of the Qur'an is by burning it. Most other forms of disposal, such as tossing it in the garbage, would be considered dishonorable. Therefore, even today, old Qur'ans are still incinerated rather than thrown away. Uthman also ordered that all future copies of the Qur'an had to come from his official virgin. And from that point onward, Uthman's Codex, as it has come to be known, is the only accepted compilation of the Qur'an. Even the Shiites, who have a generally unfavorable view of Uthman, use the same book based upon his Codex. Today, Uthman's Codex is accepted without question. And most of the Muslims of his time accepted it also. But there were many who did not, and many who resented their Qur'ans being confiscated and burned. Even some companions refused to accept Uthman's Codex. Ibn Mas'ud, the same companion who buried Abu Dhar, continued to recite the Qur'an in his own preferred way. He stated that was how the Prophet taught him and he saw no reason to change for anyone. Without a doubt, this move by Uthman ensured the veracity and authenticity of the Qur'an and prevented its fracturing. It would be his most important and long-lasting accomplishment. However, it would also feed into the overall discontent of a growing segment of the Muslim world. In closing out the first six years of Uthman's rule, we can see that there were many great accomplishments. These include the conquest of North Africa and the Caucasus, the creation of the first Muslim navy, and of course, the compilation of the Qur'an. And while most of the populace agreed with Uthman's rule, there was a portion who were dissatisfied with it. There were even some companions who disagreed with Uthman's decisions. In our review, we saw how Uthman did make some mistakes and had some errors of judgment. Compared to the two caliphs who came before him, Uthman did seem to appoint a disproportionate number of his family members to high positions. We may question his decision to remove several competent governors such as Amr ibn al-As, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, and Abu Musa al-Ashari only to replace them with his own cousins. However, other complaints against Uthman were misunderstandings or deliberately misconstrued by his detractors. These include the situation regarding the final years of Abu Dhar, not shortening the prayer during Hajj, and the burning of individual Qur'ans. Furthermore, Uthman was much softer in character than Omar, and many people took advantage of this and tried to get away with things that Omar would never have tolerated. Other factors that led to this discontent among certain people in the Islamic world had nothing to do with Uthman's leadership. Though there were still some military conquests, they were happening at a much slower pace, 
This meant less wealth coming into the empire and more men with idle time on their hands. In an attempt to combat poverty, Uthman's predecessor Omar had established government stipends. While these stipends did alleviate poverty for many, it left Uthman with a hefty financial responsibility. And in spite of these stipends, there was still a large gulf between the very wealthy and the very poor. And we cannot overlook that Uthman ruled over hundreds of thousands of conquered people. Many of them did not appreciate their new rulers and resented what they had lost in the old regimes. Another knock against Uthman was that his legacy was always seen as lacking when compared to Abu Bakr, Omar, and Ali. He did not take part in the Battle of Badr, the first conflict between the Muslims and the pagan Quraysh. At the time of the Battle of Badr, Uthman was married to one of the Prophet's daughters who was suffering from a fatal illness. The Prophet excused Uthman from the battle so he could care for his dying wife. However, Abu Bakr, Omar, and Ali had all taken part in that battle. Even though he had an excuse from the Prophet, his detractors saw this as something lacking. The year after the Battle of Badr, there was another battle, the Battle of Uhud. While the Muslims won the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud was at best a draw, but closer to a defeat for the Muslims. During the Battle of Uhud, the Quraysh broke through the Muslim line, sending many of them scattering for their lives. Uthman was among those who fled the battle. Even though the Quran states Allah forgave those who ran away, this was a culture that prized bravery and valor above all else. However unjust, Uthman would be forever tainted with the badge of cowardice. In the next episode, we will explore the second half of Uthman's caliphate. We will see how this growing discontent led to outright protests against Uthman's rule and his eventual murder. All right, alhamdulillah, this now concludes the first half of Uthman's Caliphate. As I mentioned uh, during the show and at the beginning, he ruled for about 12 years, and the events that we've covered so far only took place within the first six years of his reign, which means we covered about half of his rule. Uh, going forward, we will see how things dwindled to the point where Uthman was eventually killed, inshallah. However, I haven't done the research for that period yet. <laughs> I have to go back and start doing some research. And that means I will not be continuing this story for I, I, at least a couple of weeks. I have no idea how long it will take me to do the research on this, but for at least a couple of weeks. So in the meantime, for the next couple of weeks until uh, the next episode or the next part of this story is is uh, is ready, I will be doing instead uh, bonus episodes, inshallah, which I'm sure you remember. I've done several of them in the past, well, at least six before. Uh, there was the one on the uh, 
the the events leading up to the Afghan-Soviet war, what led to the Syrian civil war, the Nation of Islam in America, the um, and then a three-part series on the Muslim Brotherhood. So those are all considered bonus episodes because it's not part of the overall sequence of story, the main story that we are covering, which is the first 100 years of Islam after the Prophet's death. Therefore, I hope that you will be patient with me, inshallah. I will still continue to provide content. As I mentioned before, these bonus episodes, they're not heavily edited. I don't do a whole lot of research. I tend to keep my research reserved for what I can find online. I'm not going to go to the library if I don't have to. Um, I'm trying to keep it simple, just to give you just to give you a little snack in between the full meals, if you kind of get my analogy there. So just bear with me for that, inshallah. I have no idea what the next episode will be about. Uh, if you have any suggestions, please, by all means, go to the show notes of this episode and leave a comment letting me know of any anything dealing with Islamic history that you find interesting. And I will do a bonus episode on it, inshallah. Well, I will try to do a bonus episode. It depends on how or how um, obscure and how difficult it is to research. So if you have anything you want to know, by all means, give me some ideas because I only got like one or two right now and they may not, I don't know, just go ahead, shoot me some ideas and inshallah, we'll see what we can do. Now, alhamdulillah, the show, this podcast is doing very well among Islamic podcasts. Uh, currently, this show ranks number 23 among all Islamic podcasts in iTunes. And this is according to the American version of iTunes. I haven't checked the other uh, versions. There's a American version, there's a Canadian version, British version, all different sorts of versions from all over the world. But we are number 23 in the United States, which is pretty darn good considering that the other 22 episodes before this one are not true. Not 22 podcasts before this one are not true podcasts. They're not. Well, first of all, most of them, hardly any of them are in English. The vast majority of the 22 podcasts that rank above the Islamic History podcast are mostly in Arabic. And many of them are just a podcast of the Quran. And I can't beat the Quran. I don't want to beat the Quran. The Quran is the Quran. Is the Quran. I'm not going to beat that Quran, the Quran. So most of it is just recitation of the Quran. Many of them are also, um, almost all of them are in Arabic. There's a few English ones. But even those English-speaking, quote-unquote, podcasts are really famous Muslim uh, speakers and lecturers like Numan Al Numan Ali Khan and um, um, Yasser Qadhi and uh, Mufti Ismail Mink. It's their lectures. People just took them and compiled them and threw them on iTunes and called a podcast. It's not a real podcast. Alhamdulillah, it's beneficial. It's not a real podcast. But the point is that as far as English language, Islamic true podcast, this one according to my own calculations, my own logic, is number one. Alhamdulillah. And I have, first of all, foremost, a lot to think, but I also am grateful to you for continuing to support this podcast. Another strange thing I noticed is that for those top 22 podcasts under the Islamic category in iTunes, nine of them are Shiite podcasts. And they're, they're all in Arabic or Farsi. But I'm surprised, nine of them. That's like almost half of 22. I mean, if you have 22 podcasts, how do you have... Like nine of them being Shiites, the Shiites don't make up half the Muslim world. Uh, I don't know what's happening with that. Once again, the vast majority of them, majority of them, are uh, Arabic and Farsi. As a matter of fact, all of the Shiite podcasts are in Arabic or Farsi. 
But I kind of see how it may happen because really I'm looking at the American iTunes and it is, I do believe that Shiites have a much more high representation in the United States among all Muslims than they do the world over. Uh, the world over, they're roughly 15%. But in the United States, I think uh, because of the conflicts in Iran in the past and then Iraq and even Lebanon, there's been lots of Shiite refugees to the United States. And yeah, that could possibly be why. Lano's best, not really important. What is important, however, is that we have a new article on uh, romanticmuslim.com for you. It is uh, written by, once again, Sister Subhana Wahaj, who is the daughter of Imam Suraj Wahaj. Yes, I'm name dropping. Uh, she wrote this article called Love Languages, and it's all about improving communication um, among Muslim couples, among uh, spouses. And I encourage you to go check it out. I will leave a link in the show notes, inshallah. The show notes will once again be at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman3, Uthman, I'm spelling U-T-H-M-A-N. So islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman3, get a link to Sister Subhana's article. Uh, this week's favorite nasheed, as I mentioned before, is Jannah by Dean Squad. It is, it is an Islamic version of the song Panda by the rapper Designer. That's... um. It's quite a bit there, but um, the the song Jannah is about seeking halal love and uh, wealth, and you know how Muslims should be uh, striving for Jannah above everything else. It's an interesting song. Um, you'll be hearing it in a few minutes, inshallah, and I hope that you enjoy it. So, uh, I think this uh, this um song actually will go quite well with uh, Sister Subhana's article. So go check it out, inshallah. We'll we'll have the links in the show notes as well. Finally, finally, before we wrap up, I want to ask you to continue to support this show with a monthly ple- pledge. You can pledge as little as four dollars a month. Uh, links to do so. You can go to patreon.com slash Islamic history. But if you don't want to remember that, just go to the show notes, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman3. And there will be a link there where you can go and make a pledge on Patreon and help to keep this show running if you find it beneficial. And if you cannot um, support it financially, then at the very least, subscribe to it in iTunes. That helps to boost the popularity of the show, inshallah, making it more visible to more people. And once again, uh, whatever you can do, you can also share it with your friends and families. There's a, a link on the show notes page at the website. Go ahead and just click on the link, share with your f- social media people, your friends, your family, your connection, your network, whatever you got out there. Share it with them. Who knows? They may like it. They may not like it. doesn't matter. It's good. Just share it with them. Let them decide. You never know. Allah knows best. Only only Allah knows. Okay? So please do that if you can. Inshallah. And that's going to pretty much wrap it up for today. That's all the administrative stuff I got to talk about today. Once again, links to Sister Subhana's article. Links to support the show. And the actual video for this week's favorite nasheed will all be available at the show notes page, which is Islamic learningmaterials.com slash Uthman 3, because this is the third episode about Uthman. I think you kind of got the logic about that. Uthman, I'm spelling U-T-H-M-A-N. So with that, check out the show notes, and we are going to bounce on out of here to the tunes of Jannah by Dean Squad. Until next week, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Live.
but it's all good. Trying to make it to Jen. Where you at? Yalla. Jen. Jen. You got bras in Atlanta. I got my wife up in Jenna. Did it all for the Azure. Bismillah, fix my attention. Pop palaces, golden. You see me, I'm ballin' in Jenna. All I just wanted was Jenna. So I'm saying, bunch of henna. Wine rivers, chillin'. Hold on, ain't women. Halal money, get it. We go to Saudi, spin it. And this go to all of my Akis. To the sisters, the realest, the jabbies. Philistines and strip Pakistanis. All my Arabs and killer Afghanis. You got bras in Atlanta. Yeah. I got my wife up in Jenna. Did it all for the Azure. Bismillah, fix my attention. Palaces, golden. You see me, I'm ballin' in Jenna. All I just wanted was Jenna. So I'm saying, bunch of henna. Wine rivers, chillin'. Horror ain't women. Halal money, get it. We go to Saudi, spin it. And this go to all of my Akis. To the sisters, the realest hijabis. My Somalis is just Pakistanis. All my Arabs and killer Afghanis. <laughs> Habib Ali, yo, Akhi, bring that divine wine because we're about to enjoy this moment together. Alhamdulillah, we're in Jannah. Ain't no astaghfirullah after that, you know what I'm saying? We work hard for this. Got my wife up in Jannah. I'm praying Allah give me answers. Turning up in a hereafter. Allah is the best of the planets. Feeling like Adam. My wife be my only companion. I did it all for the earth. I did it all for the earth. All of the deeds are granted. All of the seeds are planted. Ain't no more weeds in the garden. All of the hearts have been soft Beautiful wives in Jannah I pray that we make it to Jannah Family you should remember To follow the holy commandments You gotta say the shahada You gotta pray to the master You gotta fast for the matter You gotta be given zakat You gotta journey to Mecca You gotta be doing your hajj You gotta be doing your hajj You gotta try doing hajj The Umbah be calling me hero Pump is the modern day pharaoh You want my sin number? Well, they got a whole bunch of zeros. I smile to the world, brother. We brought a new style to the world, brother. I love hip hop is the way to go. Have it gone played on the radio. Subhanallah. What you mean, astaghfirullah? They know astaghfirullah is in Jannah, man. You can do whatever you want in paradise. You know what I'm saying? That's what Jannah's for. There's wild rivers, palaces, gold, silk, turn up, everything. Everything. Yeah. Dean Squad. JD. Yeah, yeah. Just read the Quran. It's right there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah.